I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. All the things that made kind of conventional neoliberal globalization possible, cheap capital, cheap energy, cheap labor, all those things are breaking apart. In recent years, many of the key assumptions and ideas that guided economic policy for decades have fallen apart. But in a world of inflation and supply chain problems and growing worries over climate change and national security, it is far from clear what ideas will replace the old ones. Rana Faruhar is a columnist and editor at the Financial Times. She's covered economic policy for years, and in an essay for foreign affairs and a new book titled Homecoming, she steps back to explain what went wrong and how the fallout is shaping global politics today. Rana, thanks for being here. It's great to have you. It's so good to see you. So your essay in our November-December issue, which is titled After Neoliberalism, and the book that it draws upon, which was uh, called Homecoming and was out a couple months ago, they both contain a sweeping critique of decades of economic policymaking in the United States and the developed world more generally, but also a very specific analysis of the way in which place has figured into policymaking or you know, perhaps more precisely the way that place is not figuring the policymaking sufficiently. So I want to start by having you, I think, define the term that we've all heard a lot in the last few years. It's not typically invoked as a compliment these days, but I think it's kind of lost some of its substance and precision as it's been more widely used. It's the word in the title of your foreign affairs essay, neoliberalism. So just to start, what is it or what, what was it? Is there anything that the popular discussion of it today mangles? It definitely is worth defining neoliberalism because the fact is it's used in different ways depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, depending on whether you're coming at this from a kind of a politics and statecraft angle or a purely economic angle. The way that I came at it, because my my reporting in my book really started from an economic point of view, is to take essentially the IMF's own framing of neoliberalism. And they've written about this. And in fact, in recent years, they've begun kind of questioning it themselves and that is that neoliberalism is the, the, the political philosophy, the economic philosophy that held that capital, goods, and labor were all going to travel freely across borders and that it would be equally easy for them to do that. And that crucially, this kind of paradigm would result in all those things, capital, goods, and labor, ending up where it was most productive for them to be. Now, that is a very kind of neoclassical and neoliberal, frankly, economic way of looking at things in that it assumes a lot about markets being incredibly efficient. It assumes a lot about the idea that you can have a kind of a top-down economic philosophy. At a very practical level, it assumed something which we know is not true anymore, which is that capital travels a lot faster than either goods or labor. I mean, it. This is, this is essentially, if I had to pick one lesson of the last half century of globalization, it is that capital always traveled faster than either goods or more particularly than labor. And that's something that was really brought home to me in all the reporting. And, and uh, you know, as you know, one of the interviews that I did that was very galvanizing for me 
for the book was with um, the former labor leader, Richard Trumpka, head of the AFL-CIO. He passed away a couple of years ago. Lovely, lovely man. And I had interviewed him about trade policy in the 1990s and in the 2000s. And in particular, I wanted to try and understand the, the current trade paradigm and the backlash against neoliberalism. I wanted to understand what the conversations had been when things like NAFTA was, were being negotiated, when there was the discussion about China coming into the WTO. And he told me something that I just found fascinating and stunning, which is that he said he had had a conversation with a, a Clintonian era policymaker at that time. And Trumpka had said, look, these deals are going to kill us. You know, we understand where you're going, but what are we going to do? Labor is really going to be, you know, demolished, you know, in many ways, in not just the U.S., but in many rich countries. And the policymaker said, well, we understand that. We know wages are going to are going to fall in real terms, but don't worry, they're going to rise eventually. There's going to be that leveling out, leveling up, that term that we always hear. And Trumpka said, well, okay, but how long is that going to take? And the policymaker said, three to five generations. And that, to me, just encompasses where we are right now. You know, the idea that First of all, that we assume such precision in our economic models that, okay, let's put in all the numbers and here's the free trade input and here's the labor input and here's the productivity and oops, in five generations, we're going to be fine. Well, that kind of leaves out what's going to happen in the political economy between then and now, like Brexit, like Trump, like nationalism on the continent, like growing nationalism and autocracy in, in China. So I'll stop there, but but that's basically the argument. <laughs> and and you, I, th I think as much as, you know, anyone in this conversation has been kind of tracking this and analyzing this closely for the last couple of decades as the shift has happened, as, as you look back at that period, I think the, the rest of us look at the financial crisis and, you know, maybe Occupy Wall Street and the Trump uh, campaign and presidency, which I think really brought this home for a lot of people. What were the moments that you, over the course of that that span, started to really see the downsides and complexities of, I guess, what we would have called the Washington Consensus in the in the '90s and early aughts? Well, it's interesting. You know, I I work for the world's largest business newspaper. I went to an Ivy League college. I'm tech. You know, I hold two passports. I guess I'm part of the global elite at this stage, but I certainly didn't grow up that way. You know, I. Grew up in the rural Midwest in a in a small farm town that actually voted 75% Trump. And my father was an immigrant from Turkey, an engineer who came and studied in the US. Eventually, he ran factories in the sort of auto components circle outside Detroit. And my mother was a school teacher. Um, my dad eventually was downsized because of some of the trends that I talk about in the book. But interestingly, he started a small manufacturing business, which also informed my optimism about where manufacturing might go. But suffice to say, the 80s and 90s for me, and in particular, the period of time when I was in college, when my father lost his job, in part because of the hollowing out of manufacturing in, in the Rust Belt, really kind of gave me a felt experience for the sharp edge of some of the trade policies that were being implemented. And so when I went to New York, graduated, started working in journalism, you know, I worked at Newsweek and Time. And at that point, I, I was covering foreign affairs, I was covering economics, and you could not question the politics of free trade. I mean, you simply could not. It, it was, it was, you would have, people would have just laughed. And I remember thinking to myself, there's a real disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street, between the coasts and the technocratic policy circles and the felt experience of many Americans. But also, 
frankly, as somebody who grew up actually being in factories and seeing how they operated, to me, there was a practical disconnect, which is that I could always see that the iteration of making things was actually important to innovation and competition and development in a way that subsequently has been proven out by an increasing body of research. People like Dan Bresnitz, you know, the Canadian policymaker have written, have written about this. McKinsey's put out a lot of work on why manufacturing matters. You can just look at what happened in Taiwan at, you know, this tiny little island that became the home to 92% of the world's high-end semiconductors. They did that because the industrial commons moved from the U.S. and Taiwan was able to continue to iterate, iterate, iterate and move up the food chain. So I always felt that the the kind of neoclassical, neoliberal economic theories that said it's like Ricardo 101, doesn't matter whether you make wine or cloth. I was just never so sure that that was the case. And now... What I'm so interested in is that there are a lot of economists. I mean, Michael Pettis would be another great example. His book, Trade Wars or Class Wars, is, you know, really fleshes out some of this, that it kind of does matter and that there's a happy medium between classic Ricardian economics and protectionism. And you have to find that balance and that the balance differs depending on countries. And then layer on to that behavioral economics and real politic and the fact that, you know, we live in a world that is not always rational and doesn't work the way the models think. It just led me to feel that we need to have a new conversation about trade policy, about globalization, and really about the balance between capital and labor and how to make sure that it is fairer. Because if it's not we're going to get Trump again. We're going to get unsustainable politics that are going to make any backlash that you know your um, audience and, and the kind of foreign policy community now thinks bad, it's going to make it look mild by comparison. So if one cost to the kind of thrust of mainstream policymaking in that era was to innovation and manufacturing base. I think another error was that you stress in the book and the the piece was not paying attention to place, right? That we could step back and say, look, there'll be gains spread across the entire economy or the global economy. And if there are a few places that really suffer, then that's just kind of how it goes. You have a, a great line quoting you, neoliberal policies cause the global economy to become dangerously untethered from national politics. Um, which I think accounts for some of the dynamics you were just getting at. Can you explain what you mean by that untethering and where you see the kind of examples of of where this took place and the kinds of consequences we've seen? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I have to thank you guys um, for your your brilliant editing. You know, this idea that place matters. I feel like I actually buried the lead in some ways in the book. And I remember when I was working on this piece for you guys, you're like, well, I think what you're trying to say is place matters. And I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) maybe that should have been the title. I don't know. But uh, Look, I'm going to I'm going to share again a conversation that I had which I think encapsulates the argument and then maybe give you a few facts to back it up. As part of the book reporting, I was speaking to a senior aide to a very senior democratic senator who shares my views about the need to move to a post-neoliberal world and and he was sharing with me a conversation, you know, in democratic policymaking circles even just a few years ago about how to create jobs. And he said that he was speaking to some some leaders and they were saying, look, we just need to create jobs wherever we can because what we've realized is it's just cheaper to put them in the big cities and in the coasts. And we're not going to worry about putting them in rural America or in swing states because, you know, we'll make jobs and then people will move to them. 
And he was marveling, as I do, at the arrogance of that idea that home doesn't matter, that place doesn't matter, that community doesn't matter, when in fact, when you look at the places where jobs are really needed in these hollowed out swing states, in the places that were on the sharp end of globalization over the last 40, but certainly the last 20 years, they are in places where people are more reluctant, we know statistically now, to leave because family, community, those those friendships, that's the only safety net they have. Because of course, we live in a country where unlike many European nations, you know, we don't provide decent trade adjustment, we don't provide a lot of social safety nets. And so there's a lot of interesting academic work being done now. I would call out Gordon Hansen, uh, Danny Roderick, who have a wonderful new project on reimagining capitalism at the Kennedy School. And they are doing a lot of work along with Darren Ajmaolu, looking at how place matters dramatically when you're thinking about job creation, because migration levels are really, really different. I mean, knowledge workers like you or I might, boom, move to London or San Francisco at the drop of a hat. Not so much that out-of-work factory worker or that home health care aid that you might want to upskill. I mean, these, these sorts of policy decisions require a lot more nuance than we have thought in the past. And so that's what I'm trying to get at here, to make people realize that in the places where you really need to create jobs, the dynamics are not what neoliberal economics would have led us to believe. If you were reading a foreign affairs piece about trade and the consequences of trade domestically two decades ago, there'd always be a kind of throwaway line about the need for trade adjustment assistance and you know some, some effort to address those workers who did lose their jobs in the, the process. That I believe has been a, a failure. Are there better examples of policies that have addressed those dislocations better? I mean, why has that been such a complicated failure? It wasn't like people missed this entirely 20 years ago, but there was just not real attention or focus on it, it seems. That's a great question. And it's a complicated question. I don't think there's a silver bullet answer, but certain things that come to mind. Point number one, there was never enough trade adjustment assistance. And then point number two is, you know, kind of going back to the first first question, capital was just always so favored by the system as it was constructed that I think you were never going to get really an equal outcome. Capital was always going to travel so much faster and so much farther because the nature of the multinational company was to fly 35,000 feet above the issues of the nation state, meaning labor and trade assistance and things like that. And you can actually see that it's, it's sort of fascinating. The uh, UN um, trade folks, the, uh, the UNCTAD folks that put out those reports, had a really interesting one, I think it was two or three years ago, and it's in my book, I've definitely written about it, that they broke down in a fascinating way, sort of who took what share of the wealth pie over the last two decades. And what they found was it was essentially a handful of multinational companies and the Chinese state. You know, you might have said Chinese workers, but of course, since wages are still have been artificially suppressed for all the reasons we know, it was the state. But that sense of big is benefiting, be it big companies or the big state in the case of China, whereas other entities, be they small and mid-sized businesses, be they labor, are, are simply not able to, to move as adroitly and agilely in the current system. That's definitely been a disadvantage. I think one thing that I'm optimistic about now that's happening is the labor movement itself is getting, a, I think, a little hipper and a little more savvy 
to some of these changes and then how they're going to be coming down the pike in different ways. So, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of years, we've all been enjoying work from home. You and I are having this conversation from our, presumably your home office, my home office, and that's all great. But a couple of years ago, I was, I was at a conference of CEOs and, and one of them said, you know, I don't know. I think we're going to see a lot of white collar job outsourcing because if you can do it in Tahoe, you can do it in Bangalore. And I thought, ooh, that's one of those quotes that just, and I, you know, I was like a little worried about my own job, let alone, let alone if I'm, you know, a, say a digital back office person that's a member of the, the Communication Workers of America. Will they now understand that? It's a really interesting tension that you refer to in the book and the piece. And I think it's kind of one of the interesting paradoxes of this age. You know, we all kind of think of this as a time of rising inequality. But if you step back and look at the global population as a whole, not breaking it down by nation, it's actually a time when inequality has been falling quite dramatically. And, you know, the work that um, Ronko Milanovic, the economist, has done and which he's written about in, in foreign affairs is, you know, one powerful demonstration of this. But it is this kind of interesting tension that you have inequality within nations rising quite a bit with huge political consequences, but then global inequality across the globe uh, at its lowest probably in a couple of centuries. So, you know, you, you've grappled with this in some of your writing about these issues, but how do you kind of make sense? We kind of understand why that's happened. And the, the Bangalore example kind of powerfully brings that home. But how do you make sense of this in policymaking? What's the right way for policymakers or any observer to try to kind of weigh this dual reality and you know, is there is there a way to kind of get the gains globally without taking the rise in inequality nationally? You know, it's such a great question. Um, first of all, just to kind of frame things, yeah, it, it's not surprising actually that wealth has has grown at a global level because when you take off barriers and you allow capital to travel, you know, the upside of that is that you got a lot of development. So that's why you get billions of people being lifted out of poverty, and that's a great thing, and that's something that we should support. The problem is that the world is still governed. I mean, I don't know if it's a problem, but the reality is that the world is still governed at the level of the nation state. And so I remember sitting, I was actually at my, my friend Jillian Tett's house, she's an FT columnist as well, when the primaries in 2016 were going down. And we were at a dinner with a number of high level Republican donors. And at this point, Trump had not been the nominee. And everybody thought, oh, he's a he's a clown. He's you know, there's no way he's going to get in. And we were watching the Indiana primary in the background. And I thought he's going to win. I know he's going to win. And I said that and everybody was laughing. And I said, what do you have to offer these people? You know, these domestic voters, you have trickle down to offer them. That's not going to work. That's the problem that if you have governance at the level of the nation state, you still have to make sure that the policies you're articulating globally are going to pay off for a national votership. Now, the question is how to link those two things. I think that you can link those things. And I think that some of the conversations we're having around values are a way to do that. I mean, I think there are plenty of people in some of the lesser developed OECD nations, but also in many emerging markets that would say, yeah, we'd like to have some higher labor standards too. We would like to not be working in sweatshops and, and be you know, chased down and even killed if we're trying to unionize. I mean, I think that these, these things can actually be a way to build a coalition of values across borders. And I think that that's what the Biden administration is trying to do. 
I also think that there are a lot of, and we haven't really gotten into this, but I think that there are some massive technological disruptions coming down the pike that are actually going to change the entire paradigm of trade. And I, and I, I try and get into some of these, these issues in my book because setting aside even the political discussion we're having, I think we were going to be at an end to highly complex globalized supply chains for all kinds of reasons. I think that the kind of cheap labor for cheap capital arbitrage had ended, uh, has ended. Clearly the cheap energy arbitrage has ended. So all the things that made kind of conventional neoliberal globalization possible, cheap capital, cheap energy, cheap labor, all those things are breaking apart. And meanwhile, you're starting to get new technologies that actually not only allow, but encourage closer hubbing of production and consumption. So I think that a lot's going to change on the ground. I think we're slowly getting to a better world. But but actually, one of the things I'm thinking about as I'm speaking here is it's very difficult. We don't have a new unified field theory for the post-neoliberal era. And that's something that I find is problematic often you know, for myself as I try to talk about these topics. It's very difficult to puncture an old theory unless you have a new theory. And I was talking actually to um, the economist Joe Stiglitz about this the other day, because he's one of my sort of intellectual rabbis. And I said, I'm a journalist. I come at things from an inductive perspective. I'm out in the field and I'm gathering information. And I'm seeing ways in which the theories are not working on the ground. I'm, I'm, I'm gathering evidence. Is this useful? Is this, or do I need to be thinking about some new unified field theory? And he said, no, the way we're going to get to the new unified field theory is by continuing to gather that data and to look at all the ways that the old one isn't working. And then at some point, these pieces are going to come together. And I kind of think that's where we are right now. Yeah, I would I would just note um, that between Joe Stieglitz and Gordon Hansen and Danny Roderick, they've all been trying to do some of this in, in the pages of Foreign Affairs and we'll continue to, to, to do our best totally. to contribute. And you to guys that. have but, been great about that, actually. And it's such I I must say, I just want to give a shout out, Dan, because like it's so refreshing to see foreign affairs, which used to be the home of neoliberalism, <laughs> to, to to really be like coming out and 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 supporting this conversation. It's awesome. But I do. I, well, let, let me um, raise one more foreign affairs piece that I think takes a, a somewhat sharper would have a sharper response to the kinds of arguments that you and Stieglitz and others have, have laid out. And that comes from Adam Posen, who wrote a piece in our pages a year ago, arguing that the costs of the backlash are going to outweigh the gains and that we should be much more aggressive about redistribution, but um, also be willing to continue promoting more free trade and integration and all the things that have characterized this era, even as we do more to redistribute wealth within national borders to address those dislocations. I mean, does that to you not quite get it? Is that inadequate? I, I guess what I would say, it's funny, we were talking earlier about how place matters, work matters. Work matters a lot. This is why I've never been a huge fan of UBI as any kind of a um, universal basic in income, which is essentially just like massive wealth redistribution. I've never thought that that was a solution to any of this. And frankly, the people that put that forward tend to be like really rich people on the coasts. You know, I remember having a conversation once about this with some Silicon Valley Titan. And he's like, you know, I don't know what all these steel workers are worried about. They're going to be able to become poets or surfers now. I'm like, oh, my God, have you been to the Midwest ever? You know, And the answer is no for many of these people. I think work matters. And that's something Joe has written a lot about. 
you have to allow people to have meaning and to find meaning and, and productive place for their energies. And so I don't think redistribution gets us all the way there. I also think, by the way, that Adam, who, you know, I, I respect, um, I do think he misses the point. And I think many economists are still missing the point about manufacturing mattering. It actually really matters. And you see this. It's funny. This is a more of a business story than an economic story. But I, I hope the policymakers start to pay attention to it. Some of the firms that are doing best now that we've seen a shakeout with, um, you know, the end of quantitative easing, the bursting of the everything bubble, you know, really, we're, we're at that point in the markets now where we were using monetary policy to kind of paper over a variety of weaknesses and ills. But now as the tide is kind of pulling back, you can see who's been swimming without their shorts, as Warren Buffett always says. And what we're seeing is that there is still a lot of strength in US manufacturing, but it tends to be at the mid-market private level. So it's the companies that are more local, more community-oriented, working in almost in a more Germanic way, in a kind of a competition collaboration paradigm with local suppliers where they're they're becoming highly efficient because they're iterating and they've conjoined services, manufacturing data. That's what we need now. And if you start to just go back to the old paradigm of Cheap is all that matters. Keep share prices up, keep consumer prices down. That's going to start to break apart some of those strengths that we actually need right now in an era that is, for a variety of reasons, becoming more regional, becoming more about redundancy as opposed to efficiency, which is good. I mean, it was incredibly ridiculous that we ever had 92% of all semiconductors in one tiny geopolitically contentious island. Like we all know that now. So I think that policymakers really need to start thinking about those real world practical paradigms that show us that trade and, and economic development doesn't always work exactly the way we thought it would. We'll be back after a short break. Public Affairs is a leading publisher of nonfiction books, and their authors, from Gary Kasparov to Shoshana Zuboff, have been at the heart of the national and global conversation. Now available in hardcover, The Avoidable War by Kevin Rudd demystifies the actions of Xi Jinping and provides concrete steps to avoiding the geopolitical disaster that war between the U.S. and China would bring. To learn more about The Avoidable War and other public affairs books, visit www.publicaffairsbooks.com. So let's get at some of the policies that have changed before we talk about what still is, in your view, uh, inadequate. You're going to say in the the piece that while we've you know made some steps to the new paradigm, there's still a lot of work to be done in, in, by policymakers over the next uh, the coming years to really figure out what this new approach looks like. I think you can probably go back to certainly the Trump administration and maybe even back into the late Obama administration to start to see some of these changes. Certainly, um, it's it's been the dominant theme of Biden administration economic policy making. But what do you, as you kind of see the elements of a new policy paradigm coming into place, what to you are the kind of key elements and key policies that have started to at least put put the foundations in place for this? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Well, look, you know, I just to go back. Well, actually, I'm going to go back even beyond the Trump administration. I'm going to make a slightly different point first, but I think it'll set the context for what I'm about to say. 
We often think about decoupling, deglobalization, the post-neoliberal world as something that, that Trump brought upon us, right? That this was, you know, he started these trade wars. He kind of broke the paradigm. But actually, if you look at Made in, uh, in China 2025, which came out in 2015, that's essentially China saying, we're actually down with decoupling. You know, we want to become a dual circulation economy. We want to produce and consume more locally which putting aside whatever you think of Xi's government or, you know, just it makes sense because China is now rich enough to be not just the factory of the world, but also a huge consumer. And why wouldn't you want to have more regionalized supply chains? It's better for the environment. It's better for energy. It allows quicker innovation and time to market. So, so they were saying all of this. Then Trump comes in, or, and more, more particularly Lighthizer, Bob Lighthizer comes in as, as USTR and says, you know what? I'm going to rip the scrim away from this this willful blindness that China and the US are playing by the same rules. We are we have completely different political economies. There is not a happy way in which we can coexist within the current WTO framework and I'm going to slap all these tariffs on China and you know, like it or not, I think it was a bold move and I think it was a necessary move to kind of break this I don't know, this kind of strange silence on the part of, of leaders and, and CEOs that have been complaining about the way the system has worked and the fact that China is a protected economy. It's got numerous strategic uh, sectors that are ring-fenced in ways that are not compatible with WTO rules. You know, U.S. companies, because of our shareholder capitalism paradigm, which is also part of the neoliberal construct, are essentially incentivized and, and in some ways legally bound to just create the next quarter of growth, which means stay in China, just try and like, you know, protect as much IP as you can. Don't complain. Don't put your name to any WTO complaints or otherwise you'll be penalized and kicked out of the country. He kind of just pulled up the whole scrim on that and said, game over. All right, we're going to we're going to have a new paradigm. And I think that was useful. Now, Biden came in and, and interestingly kept a lot of those policies. But I think one of the things he has layered onto it, which is crucial, and, and this was not at all part of the Trump administration's thinking, was trickle down is over. You know, we, he, did, he did actually a great executive order in July of 2021 that I don't think has gotten nearly enough ink, where he, he came out and just said, look, the Milton Friedman era is over. We are going to be about more than share price. We are going to look at more than just consumer prices declining as a measure of thinking about corporate power. That gets into the whole new Brandeis movement, which I find totally fascinating. This is I'm talking here about Lena Kahn, um, the chair of the FTC, who is one of the legal thinkers, along with Tim Wu, who's a White House advisor, and Jonathan Cantor at DOJ, that are that are looking at the economy and saying, you know what, power exists. We live in the real world, and power exists. And particularly in a world of, of surveillance capitalism and data capitalism, how can you look at consumer prices as the only metric of well-being when oftentimes our transactions aren't even in dollars, they're in data. And so it's a barter transaction. And what does that mean? And, and you know, they're looking at things like the ability of corporations post-Citizen United and post many of the legal tweaks to just spend so much money hijacking um, the legislative process and the regulatory process and saying that matters, power matters. So Biden's EO in July of 2021, which said we are in the post-Friedman era, I think that we will look back when histories are being written and we will see that as one of those narrative turning points 
you know, almost like a Reagan era speech that we say, boom, that was one of the, the, the lines in the sand for the post neoliberal era. The, the the point about China really starting the shift, I think, is a really a really powerful one that doesn't get a lot of attention in U.S. debates. We ran a uh, sorry to be referring to so many foreign affairs pieces here, but oh. I, I thought back to a piece we ran earlier this month called "The New China Shock" by Margaret Pearson, yes. Magrath Meyer, and Kelly Tsai, which I thought was a really smart piece, noting how what they call party state capitalism in China was incompatible with with this new era, and it was it was I think a Again, a point that's just not appreciated and as we trace these debates here. Well, I love that point. And I also think it cannot be said enough that we often, American, particularly American you know, foreign policymakers, often still speak as though we're pulling all the levers. We're so not pulling all the levers. And that was, that was actually one of the things, reporting-wise, that I always felt when I would go to China over the last 20 years or so, you could just walk around and, and say, God, this is an amazing kind of amazing country, like America in many ways, very nuanced, very geographically different, depending on where you are. But like, why would they ever come seamlessly into the Washington consensus? That seemed very arrogant to me. And I remember having a conversation once with a, a Danish wind company executive. This was several years ago. And this company was number one in the in the market at the time. And I said, so how's business? How do you think things are going to be in the next five years? And he said, well, you know, um, it's pretty good. I think we're we're going to do well, we'll probably be in the number five spot um, or the four, number four spot in five years. And I was like, wow, okay, A, that's very precise. How do you know that? And B, why is that good? You're falling from number one to number four. And he said, well, that's what Beijing has told us. And it's like, right, that's right. So, so I'm glad at this point that we're starting to realize China has its own agenda. It has its own politics. We can like them or not, but they're they're working to a certain extent. Although, you know, we can argue about that too. They're working. They have worked up until now to a certain extent for China. So, so you you stress in various places that you are not opposed to trade. You are not opposed to certain forms of globalization, but that we need to kind of change the way we we approach it and we need a different kind of trade, a different kind of free trade. What might that look like? If you kind of think through what the new approach is, what does that mean in terms of policymaking process, in terms of what kinds of agreements we should have? What what are what are we kind of staggering towards in this process? <laughs> well, I, I like the the term staggering towards because I think I think it is sort of like that. I, I really don't think that we're gonna get there with a top-down approach, because I, I really believe that we're at a half century, even sort of a 70-year pivot point, where the whole paradigm is shifting. There are incredible numbers of vectors in play from technological changes to demographic changes to monetary policy and financial market changes to geopolitical changes. And so there is going to be a lot of stumbling. I think that rich countries are going to have to grapple with the fact that there there actually hasn't been any wage inflation re, re, in real terms you know since the early 1990s i mean you just look the ilo put put out a really great report looking at the conversation about wage inflation which policymakers are so worried about if you look at it in real terms it's negative. It's ne- it's like negative 3.2% in the US. It's overall, I think, negative 2%. Even in the lesser developed OEC nations, it's, it's negative. It's like 0.8% or something downward. So that's a big deal. You know, we're going to have to think about a lot more assistance uh, for labor. We're going to have to think about 
definitely more equal playing field and terms for China, uh, if there is going to be any, you know, any any new deals or any sort of involvement in the W through, via the WTO, I suspect the WTO itself is going to start to be more tiered because right now you've got what is it like over 130 countries or around about 130 countries engaging with with totally different political systems and. That's not sustainable to my mind. You know, I, I think that's one of the big problems with the China shock is that you had all this countries coming into the system, and then you had one that had a very that was very big that had a very different political economy, and it just wasn't sustainable. The rules of the road were not the same, and we're, we're going to have to acknowledge that and essentially tweak the way the system works. And I'm I'm for that. I would like to see actually Biden come out or Jake Sullivan come out with a uh, with a stronger statement about how the U.S intends to engage with the WTO because, you know, the Europeans are still often citing the U.S. like with the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, uh, you know, doing things that are against WTO rules. Well, please, you know, Germans, your auto tariffs are three times those of the U.S., your cap subsidies, you know, I could go on and on and on. But it's just clear that the current system is broken. And I think admitting that and having a narrative that, look, this isn't working the way we'd intended. How can we start to restructure it? That would be a good conversation to have. The other major change, which will have huge repercussions, has been the economic response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that's, you know, sanctions that have gone beyond anything we've ever seen. The attempt to put a price cap on Russian oil. I mean, kind of lots of really interesting uses of, of economic power by the U.S. and its allies. Do you see that as having uh, major structural implications for global economy going forward? And what do those look like? Yeah, I, I think it, it brings up again, just in in, in, mu- in a much sharper context, this idea that place matters, values matter. It mattered that you got the for Germany. It mattered tremendously that you got the majority of your gas from an autocrat. Like, at at what point did that ever make sense? Except, you know, for multinational companies and policymakers with various vested interests, you know. It's interesting, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, Christia Freeland, former FT colleague, gave an interesting speech to this effect about a month or two ago saying, look, values matter. We have to make sure that we are operating on an equal values playing field. And that means that, yeah, it's a problem to get your energy from an autocrat. It's a problem if your trade partners don't share your same values and don't operate by the same rules. And so I think we're, we are stumbling our way towards a new system in which there's going to be a lot of new coalitions being built. And I suspect that there'll be some competition between the US and, and China around this. I mean, it was interesting. I was in Washington last week towards uh, you know the middle of December and the African, a bunch of African presidents have been in town and were being courted by Biden kind of in the wake of various conversations about Chinese subsidies and one belt, one road and which way Africa was going to get pulled. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. The U.S. and China in particular competing to bring different nations within their orbit. And I think the, the big question will be, is that done in a constructive way that benefits African uh, development, or is it done in a destructive way, which will, you know, be I think one of the big questions for years ahead. Let me close on a on a very different note. This does not make an appearance in in your foreign affairs piece, and I don't think in your book either. But you've done a lot of interesting writing about crypto, and this oh. is a moment we're watching yes. the 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 meltdown of one of the biggest uh, crypto exchanges, FTX. 
it seemed like almost a caricature of neoliberal dreams oh my God, yes. of separating markets and money from you know borders and governance. And it was kind of remarkable that it was happening at the same time as you had this broader shift and many of the same people who would you know be be trashing neoliberals in one breath would hail the you know kind of dawn of the crypto age in the next. How do you explain crypto's rise, especially in this context? And what consequence do you see of its, um, you know, what looks like it's kind of a, a decline, if not collapse in this moment? Yeah, I love that question. Cri crypto is fascinating for just those reasons. For starters, I think if we weren't at the kind of apex and now, you know, turning point of 40 years of neoliberal policy, crypto probably wouldn't even exist as it does now. Because think about it. Essentially, the everything bubble in the markets have been, I believe, created and, and abetted by the fact that we've had 40 years of trend, easy monetary policy with a few blips and you know discounting the last couple of years. But basically, you had rates going down, 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 down for, for most of the last four decades. And that was because, I believe, policymakers of, of both stripes, both parties, kind of bought into the markets know best theory. And it's really easy because then you don't have to make those guns and butter, you know, trade-offs between interest groups and you can just throw it to the central bankers and say, you handle it. But the only tool they have in their toolbox is lower interest rates and quantitative easing. And so we've gotten a lot of both of that, particularly after the financial crisis, tons of easy money. After the second round of QE, I think there was just very little evidence to show that it was in fact doing much for Main Street, but it did a lot for Wall Street. You know, all of us that have assets or homes have, have felt that. And then after the pandemic, you got more of the same. You needed some of that fiscal stimulus, I think, to, to, to bail out Main Street. I wish, frankly, that in the wake of the financial crisis, central bankers had had the courage to raise rates higher so that we would have more um, room to, to lower them. But the result is that you, you get all this money chasing returns, right? Because there's so much money sloshing around the system. And this is classic bubble behavior, end of a long period of easy money, more and more speculative assets are, are, are cooked up. And then you get crypto, which is, as you say, all about the idea that money should, you know, capital should not only float above the nation state, but we should have currencies that aren't even tethered to any central bank and that they should somehow have value and you should trade in them. And this is the way the world is going to be. If you don't get it, uh, you're kind of an idiot. You know, I mean, it's that classic sort of, I heard so much of it in the financial crisis. You just don't understand, you know, you don't get, you don't get the way banks work or, you know, and now it's like, you don't get the way fintech works. I think the real tragedy, the thing that just, oh, it upsets me so much is that People of color, younger people were more highly invested, you know, at a retail level in these some of these digital currencies, in part because they didn't believe in the existing system and for good reason. You know, it was just unfortunate that these con men were able to exploit that vulnerability. Just sim similar. I mean, it's, it's Trump's great genius, too. He's the classic con man. You know, take one one truth. Hey, there's a bunch of people in the back room. And they're all trading amongst themselves and, and you don't have access to that room and tell people that and they know it's part of the, that felt experience and then build a welter of lies around it. You know, they're, they're both part and parcel of the same problematic neoliberal phenomenon. Rana, we'll end on that note, but thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for the great piece and congratulations on your book. The title is Homecoming. We'll look forward to having you back in foreign affairs before too long. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. 
You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Marcus Zacharia. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, and Gabrielle Sierra. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks for listening.